for obvious reasons. We all understood that. But the other was a place out in the Nevada desert, about 80 miles north, northwest of Las Vegas. And nobody knew why. It was, it was simply designated as Area 51. And, and, and we didn't have a clue what was there or why you couldn't fly over it, but nobody was allowed to. Contributing to a lot of the rumors, because there was lots of rumors about what happened there. I mean, everything from extraterrestrial beings being dissected to UFOs to uh, top secret military operations. And contributing to those was the fact that the United States government, until 1995, refused to acknowledge that there was anything there in Area 51. Well, in in recent years, there have been little bits and pieces about what was going on out there. It is a a very top-secret air base, kind of an extension of an air base. And and there were some very top-secret experimental programs that were were happening out there in in Area 51. One of the more interesting stories that that has come to light was uh, something that happened one day when a a single-engine Cessna landed on the airstrip there. Well, everyone on, on the base was shocked, and the, the military security forces surrounded the plane with guns drawn, and the guy, there was a, a single person in there piloting the plane, he got out, and they hauled him off to a room for interrogation. His story was he had taken off out of Las Vegas, not that far away, And he had gotten lost. And he was just about to run out of fuel. And he was going to have to crash land in the desert when he saw this little airstrip. So he landed there instead of crashing. Well, they they immediately began to run a full security check on the guy. They kept him overnight interrogating him. And and, and his story seemed to check out. So they decided by the next day that, that he was harmless And after they gave him a very stern lecture about how he hadn't seen anything out there, and if he ever told anybody what he would saw, he would be thrown into prison for the rest of his life. They gave him gas for the plane, and and he, uh, he made his way back to Las Vegas. Well, they were very surprised when later that afternoon, that same airplane comes in and lands on the landing strip. Only this time, there are two people inside. Once more, the security forces surround the plane, and he comes to a stop. He gets out of the plane with his arms in the air, and he says, look, you guys do whatever you have to do to me, but somebody's got to explain to my wife where I was last night. (laughs) You know, sometimes... Sometimes our actions call for an explanation, especially when we've been doing things that are completely unexpected of everyone around us. And we're, we're continuing our study through the book of Acts today. We're in chapter 11. I invite you to get your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 11. We're going to see a time when the apostle Peter was called on to do some explaining He had to explain his actions that were totally contrary to what everybody thought he should have been doing. 
Remember the story we looked at last week in chapter 10, how Peter saw the vision and God was calling him to do something he had never done before, would never dream of doing about eating things that, that were not, not permitted under Jewish law. And this wasn't a matter of him being stubborn. It's just that's what they felt like was honoring God, was following God's will is what God required them to do. But it became clear to Peter as he watched this vision and then as he, as he went to Caesarea and saw what happened with Cornelius that, that God was doing things in different ways, that God viewed people of all nations, which is what the word Gentile, sometimes it's translated nation, sometimes it's translated Gentile in our texts. But that's the point that God was making to Peter, helping me understand. <clears throat> as devoted as Peter was, to honoring and keeping, following the, the Jewish traditions and the interpretations of the law, he was more devoted to following the will of God as God was revealing it to him. So when, when the folks from Cornelius come and ask him to go to Caesarea, he goes with them. And when he gets there, he goes into the house, he sees the spirit God gives to, to the people there and he baptizes them. And just like we do with new brothers and sisters in Christ, when somebody comes to faith, we, we, we embrace them and we enjoy fellowship with them. And so uh, Cornelius asked Peter and the, the guys that were with him to stay, and they do. And they, they visit and they, they have, uh, you know, some times of fellowship and food and, and all the things like we would do today. And then after, after a while, after a few days, then Peter goes back home to Jerusalem. And when he gets back home, he finds a reception there that is probably not what he was expecting. You see, news of what had happened with Peter and Cornelius in Caesarea has already made its way back to Jerusalem. Good news travels fast, you know. And the people there in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers, had heard about these Gentiles being baptized. Now, it wasn't really a problem with Gentiles becoming followers of Jesus that they had any, any beef with, okay? That, that wasn't their struggle because they were familiar with people who were not Jewish people becoming part of the family of God. Remember back in chapter 8 where we saw the guy from Ethiopia who had been to Jerusalem to worship? They were familiar with that. It's just that if somebody was going to become part of God's family, if somebody was going to become a follower of Jesus, they first had to become Jewish. They had, if they were a male, they had to submit to circumcision and, and everyone had to, had to honor the law of Moses. And the problem is Peter had gone there and baptized people without requiring any of those things. And that was completely contrary to what the people, the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem would have expected. When Peter saw what God was doing, he said, man, I can't argue with that. And he baptized them. Now, the, the people back in Jerusalem, they don't know about the vision. They, 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 they've heard something about the Spirit, but they don't know exactly how things have happened. All they're thinking is this is just, this is just not right. And so when Peter returns, he doesn't return to glowing beaming smiles and pats on the back and people saying, good job, man, way to go, Peter. I heard what good things was happening over there in Caesarea. To the contrary, well, look at verse 2 of Acts 11. 
So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. I mean, you can just see the, the, the angry expressions on their face, the, the raised voices, the, the pointing fingers, and the, and the glaring looks of condemnation that Peter met. Now, in spite of how uncomfortable that had to be, Peter does exactly what a leader in the church should do in a situation like that. Look at verse 4. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. He told them about the vision in Joppa. He told them about the men coming and, and is asking him to go to Caesarea. He told them about the spirit coming on Cornelius and his household. And now he had, he had baptized them. And then he winds up this, this lengthy explanation with a perfect question. Look at verse 17. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? You see, Peter explains how he had been following God's direction every step of the way. And he explains it with, with those six other guys that were right there with him. He says, is this something, is this something he was comfortable with? No, obviously not. This was a struggle for Peter. But to his credit, when he saw that was where God was leading, he followed. And he says, you think I was going to tell God what he can do and what he can't? I'm just going to obey. Peter has realized here that requiring everyone to do things just the way he and his fellow Jewish believers had always done them before they could become followers of Jesus was not God's will. And, and it, was, it was real clear to his credit when he understood what God's will was for that place and for that time. He didn't back away from it, even though it was radically different than anything he had known. So how do the people that are so upset about what's happened, how do they respond to his explanation? Look at verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections. And they praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. To their credit, they didn't hang on to that, their insistence on keeping things the way they had always known them to be when they understood this is about accomplishing the mission of God. You know the mission of God, the one we looked at back in chapter 1 of Acts. When before Jesus went back to the Father, he, he told them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth so that people could come to know Christ and be reconciled to God. That was the mission now, when they heard Jesus say that, they had no clue exactly what that was going to wind up looking like. They couldn't, couldn't have predicted the, the ramifications of all that. Well, they, when they finally get it, they responded by saying, wow, 
God's even letting the Gentiles, God's letting people from all nations become followers of Jesus. You see, they understood finally that you, you don't have to go to Sinai in order to get to Calvary. You don't have to follow the law of Moses in order to follow Jesus because God's will is for people from every nation, every ethnic group, every background to become part of his family, the family of God and Jesus Christ. And what's really interesting, what happens next, remember after Stephen was killed back in chapter 7, you know, he was stoned. And, and the Bible tells us then that, that the, the believers were scattered everywhere. I mean, they went to Phoenicia, they went to Cyprus, they went up to, to Antioch. And now Antioch was a, an especially interesting city. Uh, scholars tell us that Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. Had over half a million people there, which was a huge place for that day. And it was not only a, a very large and thriving city, it was, it was located at a, a kind of a crossroads for transportation and for commerce and for people traveling and doing business. So it was an, a key place. Well, when the people that were there in Antioch heard about what Peter had done, that you don't have to become Jewish before you can be a Christian. They started telling other people there about Jesus. And we'll look at the outcome. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Isn't that cool? People were hungry to hear about this amazing love of God and how through Jesus we could be reunited in that relationship with God that he created us to know. And once, once some of the hoops were set aside, once some of the barriers were put down that had been keeping people from coming to Jesus, once they realized that you didn't have to qualify to be a Christian by being a Jewish person first, they were, people began coming to Jesus in droves. And this, is, this is where Christianity began a time of explosive growth greater than it had ever experienced before. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, back down in Jerusalem, they hear about some pretty amazing stuff happening in Antioch, and they decide they probably need to go check that out. So they, they tap Barnabas for the job. They send him up to, uh, to Antioch to find out what's going on. Look at verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas sees what God's doing there, and he's thrilled. And, and he says, man, this is great, but these people need some, some folks to teach them. And he knew it was too big a job for him to try to do alone. So he goes up to Tarsus, and he finds Saul. You remember Saul. We were introduced to him back in chapter 9. He finds Saul, and he says, hey, Saul, I want you to come down here and help me teach these new believers so they can grow in their faith. And Saul comes. And they, and they begin teaching him. Look at verse 26. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. 
What a, what a breakout chapter for the faith. I mean, here in, in Antioch, a place that, that probably people never even dreamed about planting a church. It's not only a church planted, it becomes a pillar of, of Christianity. And they start sending out people to tell other people about the good news of Jesus. It's just, just amazing what goes on here. Did you notice a a bit of a theme that seems to run through these verses? In in case you didn't pick up on it, let let me remind you. Look at verse 21. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And again in verse 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And again in verse 26, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Isn't it amazing what God does when we're willing to follow where he is leading? Well, truth is, what God did through them, he wants to do through us today. It's not just a one-shot deal. God's will for us here in this church is very much the same as it was for the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch. Just like it was for them, this isn't going to be an easy process. It takes some pretty courageous faith to follow God into doing things in ways that are different than we've ever done them before. You know, when you think about how things are in church today, and especially when it, when it comes to talking about change, we can often tend to think that, that we're living in times where there's, there's greater changes and, and more difficult things to deal with than, than ever before. I mean, it just seems like this, this solid rock that we were standing on has kind of been rattled and maybe jerked out from under us. And we're really uncertain about that. Now, folks, I don't want to minimize in any way the challenge that we face in considering how we go forward in the things that we do and how we wrestle with things to navigate the path ahead. But I want you to know, compared to the kind of change they had to deal with here in chapter 11, what we do is mild. The the challenges that we have to face pale in comparison to what they had to go through. I mean, the, 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 when we look at the way things are in church and, and different aspects of our, our lives of faith and, and think, boy, this is the way it's always been. That goes back about 50 or 100 or maybe 150 years. You go back 200 years ago and look at how people did church and what things were like, you won't see anything that resembles very much what we do in churches today. It was a whole different world and a whole different time. These people were dealing with stuff that had been the same for 10 times as long as the stuff that we would have to deal with. And they had the courage to step up to the plate and do that. Now, I know we don't have the same issues that they had. And we don't, we don't have a lot of controversy over circumcision or particular dietary laws, you know, kosher laws and stuff like that. It's not our deal. 
But even though the specifics are different, the principle, the issue is still the same. Are we willing to adapt so that we can take an unchanging gospel to an ever-changing world? In order to do that, in order to see God do through us what he did through them, I think maybe we need to learn some lessons from Acts 11 here. I think this chapter has some stuff that's particularly helpful for us. First thing we need to do, like they did, is to become a place where we are preeminently serious about taking the good news of Jesus to people that don't know him, people who are living without him. We need to get serious about the mission that God has given us. That mission, the one that Jesus himself gave back in Acts 1 and verse 8, that mission must take precedence over keeping our traditions or preserving our uh, time-honored ways or keeping us in our comfort zone or keeping things nice and calm. And removing the things that the evil one can use to create barriers to people coming to faith. Now, don't hear me say there are evil things that keep people coming to faith. The evil one uses things that aren't evil, but he can use them to prevent people accepting Jesus Christ. Just like the church in the New Testament, folks. If we're going to experience today what they did then, we're going to have to have the courage to respond to what God calls us to do and be like they did. You see, God doesn't call us to be comfortable. God calls us to be faithful. And that includes being faithful to the mission of taking the good news of Jesus to people who need to know him. Now, I'll tell you, I am not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I'll tell you this. If we keep doing things the same as we have been doing them, we will keep getting the same results as we have been getting. It's just reality. And I don't know, maybe I've missed something here. And if I have, when we're done here... Please come up and tell me because I need help a lot of times in a lot of ways. Maybe I've missed this, but I haven't noticed lately great numbers of people coming to faith in Christ here. So maybe we need to wake up and see where God is leading us that will help us do that. Now, please don't hear me ragging on the church here. This is a wonderful place. I am thrilled to be a part of this church. And I, that's, that's not even about because I work here, okay? I am thrilled to have been a part of this church for, for 20 years. And I thank God 
for blessing me just to be a member here, just to be part of the family. Because God has, God has given incredible blessings on us. We have, we have godly leaders. We have gifted ministers. We have gracious and loving members. We have so much to be thankful for that, that so many places don't. But that's the point. If we have been given that much, then don't we have a responsibility to share it with people who need to come to know Jesus Christ? You see, friends, this church was never meant to just be for good religious church people. The church is meant for everybody. And if we don't get that, then we've missed it. They got it. And we need to get it as well. So we need, first and foremost, to have a preeminent passion for the mission God has given us. There's another thing that we see here that we need to do. We We need our leaders to openly and honestly and patiently communicate with the church family what we're doing, and the reasons for for doing things, particularly when we're doing something that's different than we've done in the past or when we're about to do something that's different than what we're doing in the present. Leaders need to explain that to the church. That's what Peter did. It wasn't easy when when he came back home and people were threatening him and accusing him. Yeah. Not easy sometimes today because when people don't understand, they can get the same way. But Peter did not say, what what do you mean asking me that? Don't you know Jesus himself told me I have the keys to the kingdom? How dare you challenge anything I say? He didn't say that. Brothers and sisters, he patiently, openly, honestly went through the whole thing and he had those guys there that were there with him. He said, here's what God was doing. Here's how it was working. Well, we need to do the same. We need leaders that will do the same thing. There are a few things that undermine confidence in leaders in any group of any kind, like going into a room and closing the door and making the decision and sending it out and expecting everybody just to stand up and salute without understanding what's going on or why we're doing that. We need leaders that will openly communicate, especially when people are nervous, when they're anxious, when they're upset, when they don't understand. We need people, leaders that will do that, patiently and thoroughly work through those things. Third, we need a church family that will listen when the leaders communicate what they're calling us to do and why. And when I say listen, it's not talking about listening, trying to find something wrong, trying to go, yeah, I got you now, you know, and, and accusing. But listening with sincere hearts, openly and honestly, trying to understand what God's doing here and how he's leading. These people in Jerusalem were about as predisposed to reject what was going on as anybody can imagine ever being. But because they genuinely listened and they really heard what Peter was saying and they saw what God was doing 
at the end of the day, they wound up praising God and saying, man, isn't that great? God's letting people from all the nations come to Jesus. Folks, it may be that one of the reasons we struggle to see God at work in different things is because we have pretty narrowly defined exactly how we think God can work and how he can't. And we don't, we don't accept him doing anything that doesn't fit in, in our little box. Problem is you can't put God in a box. He's not going to sit still for that. And that's what they had tried to do here. God says, no, it's bigger than that. Fourth, we need to understand and accept that not every church has to be identical to every other church. Folks, the church in Antioch was very ethnically diverse. Lots of nations there. And it had a a very permission-giving, free kind of a spirit to it because of where it was and how it had come to be. In contrast, the church down in Jerusalem, the mother church, was predominantly Jewish and extremely traditional in continuing the things that they had always been doing. No big surprises there. In, In our language today, we would say Antioch was a very contemporary, progressive kind of a church, and Jerusalem was a very conservative, traditional kind of place. Now listen, neither of them were wrong. Neither of them was inferior to the other. They were just living out God's call on their life in very different specific situations and doing what God called them to do in the context of the time and the place where they were living out their faith. And we need to understand that just as it was God's idea to have two very different churches there then, it's okay now. And finally, fifth, we need to respect and support those who came before us. At the end of this chapter, we don't have time to get into that, but at the end of this chapter, we see that the the church in Antioch, the new church, supported, and that means financially helping the churches in Judea, and you better believe that included the church in Jerusalem. That was the biggest of them all. They didn't take the attitude that, oh, well, that's that's that old place where people are just kind of tied to the past and they're just... You know, that's the way it used to be. You know, we'll just kind of tolerate that and whatever and move on. To the contrary, they honored those people as pioneers of faith who had the courage to take a stand for Jesus when nobody else was doing it. And they realized that if it hadn't been for those people and their faith, no matter how conventional it seemed at the time, they may have never come to know Jesus. And they honored, they honored them for who they were and what they had done and what they still were in the kingdom of God. We're going to experience the kinds of things that God intends for us to experience here at Greenville Oaks in the 21st century. We're going to have to honor those who see things differently from us. I don't care which direction they are from you. And accept them and love them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. You, you see, 
in, in most churches, there are at least three groups, three different, three different kinds of ways that people look at things. There, there are the, the folks who love, they belong to a church because they love that church. And, and they really love where the church has come from and what the church has always been. And they, they cherish that. They want to keep it that way as much as possible. So anything that is different is really hard for them. It's distressing. And the message for those people, if you're, if you're in that place where you are, the message from Acts 11 that you need to hear is this. We honor you for what you have done and what you still are in the kingdom of God. We love you and treasure you. But don't be afraid if it's not going to continue to be exactly like it's always been. Just because things change, that doesn't mean we're not staying in the will of God any more than it did for Peter in Acts 11. In fact, to the contrary, changing in this situation and sometimes in our situation Changing and obeying God means following the will of God, not leaving it. It means we have to listen to the leaders explain what's happening and why and trust that God is the one leading his church. But there's another group of people in most churches. And those are the people who belong to the church because they, they love the church and they want to see it change and grow and develop into something more than, it, than it's ever been before and, and different than it is today. They feel like God has so much more for people to know of his love and his grace and the freedom he offers. And they want to help us as the body of Christ experience that. They see little value in the way things have been done in the past and, and honestly are just kind of tolerating the present until they can move on to something better. If that's where you, you find yourself, if your heart kind of resonates there, there's a message for you from Acts 11 as well. And that's this. Be sure you recognize the tremendous debt of gratitude that you owe to those who came before you in the faith. They weren't perfect. They certainly didn't have church down perfectly. But without their faith and their commitment to God, we might not even be believers today. And honestly, we stand on their shoulders as we seek to live out the will of God in our own lives. And carefully examine what we're doing and how we want to move to ensure that it really is lowering barriers and helping people come to faith in Jesus and not just doing it because we like it. And there's typically a third group in most churches. Those are the folks that belong to that church because they love the church and they're happy with things just the way 
they are. They just want to keep it that way. They're not trying to pull back into the past. They're not trying to push forward into the future. They just feel like, you know, God has blessed us and we've got a, a wonderful blend of the contemporary and the traditional. And man, we just, we just feel like this is where we need to be and it's working well. And, and we don't want to mess that up. We, we, don't want to, we don't want to create problems. Now, there's a message. If that's where you find yourself, there's a message for you from Acts 11 too. Message is be careful that we don't get complacent. Beware of wanting to just keep everything calm at the expense of moving forward to where God is calling us to go. You know, a ship in the harbor is probably pretty safe. There's just one little problem with that ships aren't made to stay in the harbor. They're made to go, to go somewhere, to accomplish something. And so are we as the body of Christ. God has called us to a journey of faith. I mean, he didn't, he didn't call Abram to stay in Ur. He didn't call the Israelites to stay in Egypt. He didn't call the exiles to stay in captivity. He wanted them to move. And he's calling us on a mission too. Brothers and sisters, just as he did here with the church in Acts, God is calling us to be a part of a mighty army he is raising up to fight the forces of darkness and take the good news of Jesus' victory to people who desperately need to know it. You don't join an army to have a nice, safe, comfortable, easy lifestyle. You join because you understand there are challenges that you will face. There are sacrifices you will make, even to giving up your life. But it's worth it because you believe in what you're doing. Consumer mentalities don't do well in the military. They make for lousy soldiers and losing battles. And if we want to start marching to victory, we can't have that attitude. It's, we've got to get off of this. It's all about me and my family and what do I need. And, and my f- has to be about what God is calling us to do that's bigger than we are and that he's going to give us the privilege of being a part of. May God give us the eyes to see the true fight and the courage to volunteer for the front lines and may he transform us in the process more into the image of his son Jesus Christ let's pray together oh God thank you for the amazing stories of courage and faith that we see in your word please God do it again do it here